Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Food and Wine's Tinfoil Swans, a weekly podcast serving up inspiring, touching, hilarious, and revealing conversations with some of the biggest names in the food and beverage world, and we hope giving you plenty to savor even after the episode is over. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Executive Features Editor at Food and Wine, and I am eternally fascinated by how successful and creative people become, well, themselves. What are the moments, influences, missteps, pep talks, and decisions big and small that got them where they are today? It has been a particular joy over the past few years to watch the world fall in love with Gregory Gourdet. You might know him from his excellent stints as both a competitor and as a judge on Top Chef, a challenger on Iron Chef, or even playing himself on Portlandia. You might be, as I am, a massive fan of his best-selling and award-winning cookbook, Everyone's Table, Global Recipes for Modern Health. Perhaps you have recently read the incredible story that Corsha Wilson wrote about him in the August issue of Food and Wine, or you have spent months scheming to get into his Portland restaurant con, which recently won the James Beard Award for Best New Restaurant. Gregory Gourdet is and should be at the forefront of restaurant cuisine in America, and he's pretty surprised to be here, and he takes none of his life for granted. I am so grateful to have gotten a chance to sit down with him to talk about being a chef in recovery, pushing himself to learn to swim, Barbie, and why De La Soul is so important to both of us. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 9 of Tinfoil Swans, Gregory Gourdet and the Epic Swim. A warning, this episode contains mention of substance use disorder and suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling, please call or text 988 or chat at 888lifeline.org to connect with a trained crisis counselor 24-7. Please take care. I was doing my homework on you. And you're just three years younger than me, so I'm going to ask you a particular question because I also know where you grew up. And this thing has been scratching at my brain. I cannot stuff enough De La Soul into my head right now because it was so foundational for me. So can we talk about that just for a second? Because you were a weird kid growing up in New York. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's our generation. We are like all the same age. Being from where they were from and kind of being alternative like when I was younger, De La Soul was definitely super instrumental. I mean, I think Three Feet High and Rising is one of the first CDs I ever bought. Very, very, very important part of my coming up. <laughs> I mean, I definitely, I had every CD, I had every cassette, and I still have a box in storage of CDs and cassettes that I literally cannot get rid of. <laughs> different albums definitely pinpoint different eras of my life, and it's like really fun to go back. Reading up on you and stuff, it seems like you went out and experienced music and culture and this stuff. I think of you as like a weird art kid. Is that <laughs> fair to say? Very much so. <laughs> I'd love to ask people, when you were 10 years old, who were you? 
When I was 10, I was a quiet kind of nerdy kid who only had like a small group of friends, but I feel like I was very socially comfortable. I remember just reading a lot of books. I would spend hours and hours at the library and just read tons and tons of books. And my sister would do the same. And I remember spending a lot of time with my sister, our cousins and relatives, very kind of classic immigrant family. So it's like a cluster moves to the States. Everyone kind of lives in the neighborhood. We'll send some younger kids over to summer as they transition into the States. So we always had like a huge family thing happening. But on the other side of that, growing up in Queens, which is one of the most diversely packed places in the world, I went to high school, even though we were in a very predominantly black neighborhood. I went to school with a lot of Jewish folk and Italian kids. It's just New York. So I felt fairly well-rounded. I mean, very, very New York, but that being said, very well-rounded. So like in the real world Sesame Street kind of way. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, is there a Sesame Street? Is there a character you feel aligned with? I mean, back in the day, I was more of like a Transformers, G.I. Joe kind of guy. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a particular one? I mean, Optimus Prime. That is what I collected. I wasn't like the most butch little boy, but... Still played with my sister's Barbies quite a bit. Have you bought your tickets yet for the Barbie film? Take the nieces, maybe. Actually, I'm going to go see them in a couple weeks, so that would be fun. I have a feeling you're really, really good at uncling. Oh, I love it. We go shopping. Like, well, my nieces love to eat. They're a little picky, but I will say they do love to eat. And what they enjoy eating, they love eating. I remember when we told them about Khan, they were asking if there was a kid's menu. It was (laughs) very, very funny. But they came to our opening. They loved everything. So they really enjoy big flavors. So that's really great. But yeah, we eat, we play. They're all extremely talented. They swim, you know, just crushing that stereotype. That's so cool. Because my sister does not swim. I learned how to swim as an adult. That's a really brave thing to do. I have had friends who've learned to swim, ride a bike, drive as an adult. And my friends who grew up in New York City, none of them can drive. But like learning how to swim, what made you decide to do that? Where'd you find the courage to do that? So when I moved to Oregon in like 2008, I was deep in my last bout of addiction. So I had checked into rehab in New York City in 2006, and I'd been fired from jobs. I'd worked at a couple really, really terrible places. I finally got a job with some friends, and we were just all partying, brand new restaurant opening, and like it just came to a head. And at the encouragement of my friends, they're like, yo, you need to go to rehab. And I was like, I do. So I came out to my parents as an addict and an alcoholic, and I checked myself into rehab in Union Square. It was outpatient rehab, but like I had really no concept of understanding of what addiction meant. I had no experience with recovery or addiction from any one of my friends or anyone in my family. I was the first kind of one in my world experiencing any of this stuff. So I did a geographic. I ended up moving to San Diego for a few months to work for some other friends. That was like a pretty big mess as well of drinking. I ended up moving to Portland and I finally got sober. And after about like eight months of living here, I did a huge, huge, huge 180. I became like this crazy runner. I went paleo. I lost all this weight. I was like super gung-ho. And at some point after running a few marathons, this is probably like two years into my recovery, I decided I wanted to be an Iron Man. That was that was going to be my goal. <laughs> just right into it. Mm-hmm. Just channeling all that addictive energy into whatever it just I could. Really tracks <laughs> every person I knew. It's like sober has something else they picked up. It's drums. It's martial arts. It's something. <laughs> 
Moderation, not so much. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, all right, I need to be an I want to be an Iron Man. I need to run. I need to swim, and I need to bike. And I knew how to bike. I was a decent runner, so I just decided I need to learn how to swim. So I took swimming lessons for like a year. I worked up to my first swim race, our first swim race, like on the calendar, and we go out to this lake up by Washington, and I jump in, and it's my first swim race, and my ass is dead last. <laughs> like my. <laughs> coaches with me there's like 14 year olds who are beating me like i'm dead last and i get out of the water and the entire heat like there's multiple races after me every single person there's like clapping you can do it you can do it oh, <laughs> i'm like the last person like everyone on the shore is like you got this and i was like you know what <laughs> <laughs> if I really want to be a swimmer, I'm going to have to like really, really, really work at this to make the cutoff. So that was like the beginning, middle and end of my swimming career. But through it, I learned how to swim and I gave up on trying to be an Ironman. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking with a friend this morning about like the power of being okay with sucking at something. Because, <laughs> you know, you get driven and you want to be like you do something and it's hard to like not try to be the best at it. But <laughs> there's one thing for trying and then there's just one thing for getting enough out of that, I think. There's also a thing of how much do you want to commit to something? If I had wanted to truly be a great swimmer or really be a triathlete, I could dedicate to swimming for the next three years and work on my time and, and get there. I just didn't have the passion, but I tried and that was good enough for me. <laughs> and what I got from that story too is you still finished the race. And through that, now I can jump in the ocean. I can jump off a boat, like all the things that I would never do prior to that. I won't be racing anytime soon, but <laughs> I did check off a few things. So so you're running around Queens and you said you ended up at like a boarding school in Delaware that it sounds like they had some pretty amazing programs. So what was like the passion that led you there? Speaking of affirmative action, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm very grateful. I was part of a program called Prep for Prep and its focus is to find higher performing kids of ethnic backgrounds, kids of color, and place them in either private school in the city or boarding school or on the East Coast. So what they do is after some testing, you get in, you go to class all summer before eighth grade. You go to class on weekends all throughout eighth grade and you go to class all summer before high school. And it's kind of like advanced math, advanced English courses, kind of just to get you up to speed versus probably the education you've gotten through grade school in whatever borough that you were going to school in. Prep for Prep was truly an amazing experience. You're surrounded by a bunch of students of color. It takes definitely some dedication. Obviously, it's an investment on your parents' part to continue having all this education around your regular scheduled courses. All this curriculum took place in the city, so you'd have to commute into the city. You also spend a couple weeks at a boarding school over the summer just to get acclimated to like living on a campus. I had a class of about 70 in my graduating class. I would say we had about 10 black folk, if that. I will say currently the school is about 50% POC, which was really great to see at graduation this year. But yeah, so that was it. My parents just moving to America. They always believed in education and they just always wanted the best for my sister and I. So any opportunity that they could find to help us just get further in life they supported. And Prep for Prep was one of those things that worked out being really, really great because I truly, truly, truly love my high school experience. I wasn't by any means the best kid in high school in terms of grades or my behavior. But <laughs> what were you up to? <laughs> there was like that little suspension incident for getting some drugs mailed to school that the headmaster intercepted. What a 
in your kid brain was thinking, hey, this is a great idea? I don't know. <laughs> you start hanging out with a bunch of kids in the city and all hell breaks loose. I was just a good boy from Queens. I went to Catholic school and then all of a sudden I'm hanging out with kids in the projects in the Bronx and all these rich kids from the Upper East Side. It's like a big crazy mashup. We still know exactly what happened, but after a very debaucherous weekend in the city, we decided it was a really good idea to get a bunch of drugs mailed to school and the headmaster of our school intercepted the package and that involved a very big investigation. Three of us got suspended and someone got expelled and this was my sophomore year and to the deep shame of my parents, they had to come and pick me up after sacrificing everything that they did to get me to boarding school and take me home for two weeks. So that was extremely awkward and extremely uncomfortable, but I bounced back and unfortunately when they say don't smoke pot, (laughs) it leads to other things. I'm the poster boy for that. But other than that, high school was like truly, truly Really an amazing experience. It really kind of opened my eyes to like living in nature because obviously growing up in Queens, it was somewhat suburban for New York. But, you know, I know that I have made many decisions to live out West, be it Montana or being the past like 15 years in Portland because I was living in Delaware and, and like I have to be outdoors now. And I think really that experience instilled a love of the outdoors for me. So I'm grateful. You know, I think just being in that situation instilled in me a desire to feel like I love to travel travel, leaving home at 16 to go live on my own for the first time, this huge sense of independence. So overall, I gained a lot of life lessons from that experience. And it also broadened my eyes to kind of just the different types of people in the world because my world was very, very Black American, Caribbean American, Haitian American. I met kids from all over the country at a very early age. So at this particular point, does it occur to you that there is a life in food, in restaurants? Not at all. Not yet. My parents worked in hospitals their entire careers. I just always grew up thinking I wanted to be a pediatrician and kind of follow in their footsteps. One of my first job was volunteering at my mom's hospital. So that was always the plan to the point I got into NYU freshman year and was doing pre-med. And after being gone and like living on this idyllic setting with a pond and like great blue herons flying around (laughs) and cornfields and going back to the city and commuting two hours from Queens to Manhattan to go to NYU every day. It was like a very lonely, interesting year. I had made my best friends in high school. We all lived together. It was a very interesting year. And I just felt like things weren't clicking. I struggled with my courses. And that's kind of when I decided I wanted to study wildlife biology, which again, I think the experience in boarding school kind of instilled this kind of like love of nature and the outdoors to the point I thought I wanted to study wildlife biology. That is what took me to the University of Montana. I enrolled in wildlife biology. I would say a year and a half in, that was the first time I was living on my own, paying my own rent and feeding myself. And that is kind of like really where it all clicked. We'd have like potlucks and I would make all these lavish feasts and we'd have like holiday and I'd cook and cook and cook. And I was really just like reading cookbooks and trying to be economical because I was just like a poor college kid. And I was vegetarian back then. So it was like the Moosewood cookbook. You know, I just did this deep dive into the cookbooks that were on the shelves in the bear. And like there is Moosewood representation. (laughs) I know. I saw the list too. And like black food is in it. And I was like, oh my God, I'm in black food. I'm like, I'm in the bear. Well, there was some stuff I couldn't see on the shelves, so your book might even be in there. If producers of The Bear are listening to this right now, Gregory needs to be on the shelves. But yeah, so it was a combination of that, cooking on my own, and 
my friend Claire, I'll never forget this. She was like, you're good at this. You should go get a restaurant. And she literally went up to this woman, Marianne, at this place called the Hobnob Cafe, which at the time was the best little cafe in, in Missoula, Montana. And she's like, he's really good. He should cook here. I had never cooked in a restaurant before. And I started washing dishes. And that was like literally my first job. I also got a job at this place called Freddy's Feed and Read, which was like a bookstore in Delhi. And this gracious woman named Celeste, who was like the biggest deadhead, she was the first person who taught me how to cook. And we would make like pasta salad and sandwiches and you know I'd make like my tempeh Reuben make sure that like that sandwich was even cut nice make sure my pasta salads were super glossy it was like clicking and the chef at the restaurant he saw that I was kind of like itching to get on the line and he's like you should go to culinary school I was like hey it's 19 19- 93 <laughs> like what is culinary school it was also a situation where like i literally looked up in class and like i was like studying barbed wire with a bunch of cowboys and like as hot as that sounds <laughs> <laughs> i was like maybe this isn't like my calling so i was like mom dad i want to go to culinary school and they're like no you need to graduate with a degree and this is like your second college you're traipsing all over the country let's get you wrapped up and then you can go to culinary school i had a bunch of french credits i wrapped up a french degree and hightailed it to CIA. So what year did you start at CIA? I started at CIA in 1998. So old. What was your experience when you got there? Oh my God. I ate it up. (laughs) I mean, I was older. I had already graduated from college. I walk in and I meet Pete, who's like a Jewish kid from Queens. And like, we're basically the same age. We were roommates. It was just like perfect. All the settings felt good. It felt good to be back home just a couple hours away from the city. But it was really the curriculum that really just like blew me away. It was just the first time like I loved school. And like, I enjoyed college. I had a great time. But like, it was like the first time, like the curriculum, like I like love doing my homework and like I love studying and like I love studying my wine. I love nerding out on my knife cuts and learning all the French terms. And it just felt really, really good. I was like from the class, teacher's pet, and I did really well. And it was just really the first time in my life I felt super, super passionate about something. And I just had a great time. Did you see somebody whose career you're looking at and thinking like, yep, want that? Honestly, I I definitely think it took some time. When I started culinary school, like I really didn't have a vision of the chef I wanted to be. So the funny thing is my curriculum started like a few months after I graduated from Montana. We needed a few months of experience. So I worked in New York City, Lower East Side, Alphabet City for like six, seven, eight months. It was called Perot. It was like this tiny, tiny French bistro, like way back in the day. So like they're just opening. I get a job there. I don't even remember how like I got the job. Maybe like just like the paper or something. And like the owner fires the chef who's like drunk and crazy and like being belligerent. And me and Shek, who I think he was from Senegal, ended up getting promoted. <laughs> With having no experience, the crazy chef gets fired. Shek is promoted to chef. And literally, like I'm like the sous chef. And we had to run that little place for months. So very early on, even before I went to culinary school and like learning how to properly you know, mince a shallot. So fast forward to intern and my intern took place at Jean-Georges. And I was the first one from the CIA to intern at Jean-Georges. And again, it just felt like I was on the fast track in a lot of different ways. They didn't have an organized externship program back then. We were thrown on the line and literally I was 
just cooking at Jean Georges in like 1999. The restaurant was just like a couple years old. He just gotten four stars from the Times. So it was a very crazy, intense experience. But I did experience a lot of kindness from JG and a lot of trust. And I think it really instilled in me a sense of ownership in my station and the things that I do because I was trusted to kind of like already just jump in and, and do it. And like that's kind of like been my attitude in life and a lot of the decisions I've been able to make like as an older person. But that experience was like very, very foundational for me. It's also one of the best kitchens in the world. So going back to school, graduated. A week later, I was at Jean Georges and I was with him for about six and a half years, almost seven years. We'll be back with more from Gregory Gorday after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Tinfoil Swans. Today, I am chatting with Gregory Gorday. So today that we're recording this, this is the exact day, the 50th anniversary of like the start of his career. So I'm just like getting chills as you're telling me all of this. The amazing Ashley Day just today published a, a 50-year retrospective, and they're talking about why people stick with JG for such a long time. What is it about him that makes people so loyal? I think he just always approached things with kindness. I, you know, we talk about like fine dining, and we talk about past experiences and like the experiences that shape us. I had a very, very safe experience at Jean Georges. I will admit I was like a hot mess. And unfortunately, my time with them coincided with my escalating drug addiction. And that's like another part of it. But we were just always trusted to do our thing. We were never forced to do anything we didn't want to do. There was never any like any of the crazy stories that we hear of like burning, throwing pans, any of that craziness. It was a, a professional, hardworking, dedicated kitchen. And there was tons of promotion. He didn't feel like we couldn't advance anything. He has 60 restaurants around the world. He's like always looking for talent. And we were surrounded by chefs of different backgrounds. It was definitely male heavy, but there were definitely women who were promoted in, in situations as well there. So I felt very nurtured. My mentor, Greg Brainin, he's the main recipe developer for the company. He came up at the same time I did. You know, when I was an intern, he was a cook. When I was a cook, he was a sous chef and so on and so forth. So it was just like a very cool place to be. I feel lucky that I was like one of the first people, it was Jean-Georges creating all the recipes and then Greg created all the recipes and I was able to contribute and have a few things put on the menu, have a couple of things put in his cookbooks. So it was just like a very, very nurturing place. 
it's such a rare situation for kitchens of that era. Like, I'm so fascinated by restaurant culture in the late 80s through the 90s and the brutality of it. So when you talk about a kind environment, that really, really stands out because that was definitely not the norm. Did you experience that at some of the other places you worked or did you work at a lot of other places? I worked at three of Jean-Georges restaurants for about six and a half years, but I was at Nougatine and Jean-Georges up in Dallas oh, for a few love- years. Nougatine, my God. I was my first sous chef job. And then 66, which was like a modern Chinese restaurant in Tribeca, I was there for about a year and a half. And that was like kind of like the end of my downward spiral. I mean, that's really all only, the only two places I worked in New York City outside of like a bunch of really, 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 really bad places that I worked at, like at the height of my addiction after I got fired from Jean-Georges. If you feel comfortable talking about it. Oh, no, I'm super comfortable talking about everything. I can't say how much I appreciate you because you are so open about all of this because I think it really helps to like have people like you who are successful talk about it. But because you hold them in such esteem, God, that had to hurt. I mean, this is a story of recovery. So at the height of my addiction, I was given multiple chances. My mentor, Greg, I was by his side the entire time, but there's like only so much love you can give someone if they don't show up for life. In addiction, we have to fall. It has to be bad enough to make us want to change or else we won't stop. So like after numerous opportunities, after numerous promotions, calling in other people to help me at the restaurants I was managing, like I finally got fired for like not showing up to work. I got my stuff together. I made my amends to the whole team. And it was like so intense. I remember making my amends to Greg and Dan, who was head of operations for Jean-Georges. And it was a lot. They all accepted my amends and we've been able to quickly repair our relationship. I see Greg every single time I go back to New York. I see JG a couple times a year at events. I dine at Jean-Georges. I brought in our CDC Verania to Jean-Georges to experience what I went through. And, you know, we had a beautiful dinner there a couple winters ago to kind of like presenting the lineage. I truly believe in second chances because a lot of people gave me a second chance and it worked out. So I will always give someone a second chance. That's a beautiful thing to have. I think this world is short on forgiveness. I don't think anybody listening to this is any stranger to the fact that addiction runs rampant in the industry. And I feel like it's talking about it has been so much more normalized over the past, I'd say, five to eight years or so. I don't know. There's sort of a time frame where all of a sudden the switch flipped. I think a lot of it had to do with Anthony Bourdain's suicide and some other very sort of high profile things. But it's still a lot of taboos out there and a lot of shame and stuff. So when you're seeing somebody else who maybe is in the throes and it's just not being talked about or you can tell they're out of control, for folks listening who might have these situations in their lives, what can you do? If it's somebody on your team, if it's a peer in the industry, what do you suggest that people do? The challenging part about this is that there are resources out there, but it truly has to be that person wanting change. And sometimes change can be inspired by being called up by other people. Like for me, you know, hey, you keep showing up for work at 5 p.m. <laughs> we open at 4. <laughs> you can't work here anymore until you go to rehab. Right. I get it. I'm seven years in. I need to go to rehab. Mom and dad, I need to go to rehab. It takes me two years to get sober. That was my journey in a nutshell. I feel sometimes people don't know that there are resources out there. I feel people feel like they don't think they have a problem. I did a TEDx about looking in the mirror. Like that was on recovery and about looking in the mirror. And someone called me out and it kind of set me on my journey. And I think we have to be able to support people through it. Hey, I've noticed you've been drinking do you think you have a problem? And like, it really is important that people think 
realize, understand that they do have a problem so they can initiate change. The problem with all of this is that people are dying from drug and alcohol addiction in our industry every single day. So it's like we have to be able to talk about these things very, very openly because we are dying and we don't need to die. My story is bad. I was addicted to freebasing cocaine for a year and a half, but like luckily I still had a home to go to because my parents took me in every single time. Other people don't have the same story. It can get really, really bad for people. So we have to look out for each other. I mean, I've lost numerous friends to alcohol and drug addiction over the past couple of years. I think we need to call people out, but at the same time, we need to offer support, we need to offer help. We can't enable people, but we have to offer resources. There's Alcoholics Anonymous. There's Ben's friends. There's a lot of just support groups that can get people going in the right direction. I feel like if you're not ready to commit to a program like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is how I got sober, which is like a complete lifestyle change. I suggest going to a Ben's friends meeting. They happen online every day at 10 p.m. Pacific time, 1 p.m. Eastern time. And it's just a meeting where we just talk about like where we're at. We offer resources, we offer phone numbers, and we can kind of get into kind of like just like staying sober one day at a time. And if you're ready for a full overhaul, there's Alcoholics Anonymous, which is like an amazing program, amazing lifestyle of recovery. But we have to be able to talk about these things. And for me, being in the public eye over the course of the past eight, 10 years since I've been on Top Chef the first time and having to public speak. And you hesitated when you asked me to talk about this, but like the thing is like I used to hesitate as well. But being able to talk about these things, it kind of takes off a layer of shame. I started working because people from across the country would reach out to me and be like, hey, I need to get sober. What do you suggest? Or, hey, I just got my fourth DUI. What do I do? It's extremely important that we are open about this because people are hearing that there is a way out and they're asking for help and people need help. There's a talk I've given in the past called an awkward conversation will not kill you. And, you know, and I say, like, it's better to have that awkward conversation with somebody who's going to get mad at you than go to their funeral later. It's as stark as that. And while recovery and addiction aren't things that I have personally experienced being open about mental health, it took a long time to get to the point where I was very public. And coming out talking about that was the scariest thing I've ever done. But I always sort of liken it to, do you get fireflies where you live? No, they're definitely an East Coast thing. But yeah, I miss them. <laughs> yeah. I just, but I always say, like, stark and that first one comes out and then all of a sudden another one responds to it. And then the sky's lit up or the, you know, the yard's lit up with fireflies. Then It just honestly just reminds me of like being like a kid in Queens, like so yeah. much. <laughs> it's so magic. And then like once you see that there's somebody else out there talking about it. And the reason I hesitate is like I never want to assume where anybody is on their journey about it. But you're absolutely right if we don't keep talking about it. I'm glad you're here to record this podcast because I'm sure there are points when that wasn't necessarily a given that you were still going to be around. I've made some poor decisions in my life. I'm happy. I'm a tough cookie and I have my health and I've been able to bounce back. When did you realize that it was time for you to have your voice and represent Haitian food and represent all of this and build a restaurant? It's one thing to sort of cook it and have some dishes on a menu and it's another thing to open a restaurant. That is the best new restaurant <laughs> in the United States of America, according to the James Beard voters. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting talking about like career path. I was at my last job, which was a hotel here in Portland for about 10 years. And before hotel 
chefs were accepted. (laughs) (laughs) I was doing it and kind of living that corporate life. But at the same time, my last job taught me a lot of things. It taught me how to run high volume, taught me how to be able to kind of like see numbers. It was a pan-Asian concept. So I would travel to all these different Asian countries annually to kind of study and absorb. And I do consider myself a global chef and I'm able to approach my own Haitian heritage with that same vigor in terms of like wanting to learn about ancestry and the cultural lineage of certain dishes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are like, why do you work there? You're working for somebody else. You'll never make a name for yourself. You'll never get these awards working here. And at the same time, I kind of worked there until I woke up one day, like literally eight years in. And I was like, hey, it's time for me to do something different. And I had a year and a half exit plan. You know, it was very calculated. And now I can run con. It's mine. I own most of it. I run the show. So everything that I learned, like in my last place, kind of like helped build up to like me knowing exactly what I need to put in place to open con. So I think we can't get pressured by other people into kind of like defining what our fate is. And sometimes you got to trust your gut. I think people staying places seven, 10 years, I've stayed at two of my jobs is almost unheard of in today's culture. Today's kind of culture of kind of like, hey, I want to learn as much as I can in like nine, 10 months at this place and then jump onto the next place, which I see quite a bit to each their own. But I've literally only worked at a handful of places and I've been able to do my thing and it's worked out. So what's your relationship to the word perfect? Oh, man, I don't know. Like some people call me a perfectionist. I don't think I'm a perfectionist. This isn't the perfect example. Like my apartment, I would say 10 of the spaces in my apartment are like spotless, like to like my medicine cabinet and everything's lined up. Like there's a speck of dust. And then three of the spaces are completely cluttered. <laughs> like stacks of papers, can barely walk in the room. So there's, I think there's like a little dichotomy that lives within me. Now that you are arguably household name at this point with accolades and being on TV and having the restaurant and all this. What are you going to say to that dreamy, nerdy little 10-year-old version of yourself who's maybe trying to figure some things out or the kid who's getting suspended from school, that version of yourself? What would you want to tell them? I don't know. Some days I feel like I'm still a kid and I'm still getting in trouble. (laughs) I know that feeling so well. I identify as a messy child. Like feel like my chef is mad at me, like my business partner. (laughs) I mean, for me, yes, I have regrets. And I've done some things in my life I completely regret. But there are other huge things that kind of have led up to where I am today. If I didn't have this addictive personality, would I be as driven and as passionate as I am now? If I didn't have vivid memories of being like the worst employee to people who really cared about me, would I be as compassionate as I am now to the challenges some of my teammates give me? Would I want to mentor my team as much as I want to and really kind of hold hands and like really push some of them into the stratosphere as much as my mentors have mentored me? I don't know if I would change much because everything that we've done in life takes us to where we are. And yes, I've made some mistakes, but like at the same time, I'm here today. I have my health. I have my tenacity. I have my passion. There's not much that scares me. I'm comfortable talking about my recovery. I realized I have anxiety and I started dealing with that last year. I just think 
I can't ask for a better life and like the good, the bad, the joy, the pain. I think we have to accept it all. I just feel very comfortable because like I really feel like I know who I am. So like even when things go hard, like I know I've been through my worst thing. Addiction is like the worst. Being addicted to like freebasing cocaine for a year and a half, it's a bottom in life. Getting in a car accident and having a car flip in the air and getting put on a stretcher and taking to the R, then realizing you're perfectly fine and getting sent to jail, still drunk, you know, like that's the bottom. Dealing with the pandemic and the reckoning and being in the New York Times over some crazy stuff, that's the bottom. But through all of that, I've held on to who I am and I've decided to focus on being the better person and listening to others. And here we are today. I know I keep coming back to like things of light, but you can't see stars unless it's dark out. And it's that contrast mm-hmm, of mm-hmm, the things if you mm-hmm. hadn't had those lows, all these tremendous things, your gorgeous, gorgeous cookbook, being on top shift, getting the accolade of best new restaurant and stuff that's probably shine brighter in contrast to what you went through because you had to fight for those things. You had to fight to be the person who made those. And it's not easy. I don't sleep much, but like, hey, I never <laughs> slept much. It's like one of the perks, you know, like being a cokehead. Like, I don't know how to sleep still. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you when the memoir is going to happen. That's book four. So we're currently working on book number two, which is kind of like a weekday friendly book, global recipes featuring recipes from the diaspora, kind of like looking at what home cooking means around the world a little bit more and kind of like diasporic kind of countries, the Caribbean, Africa, South America focused, really quick, easy recipes. Our recipes like half page on page. And then my third book is a regional look into Haitian cuisine, which I'm so, so, so excited to dive into. I really want to trace the history of a lot of traditional Haitian dishes and their ancestry, be it the native indigenous Tayanos and Arawaks, or is it West African influence, or many of the kind of like immigrants that moved to Haiti and part of their culture onto the cuisine, and then the memoir. So I knew you were writing before I actually got to taste your food, which I only got to taste your food very recently. And it's so, so gorgeous. You cooking at the Food One Classic in Aspen. So in my head, first, you're a writer and you're an extraordinary writer. Thank you so much. And it comes through in the cookbooks and which is why I just keep pressing you about the memoir too, because like, I think you're such an incredible writer. A question I ask everybody though is, does tinfoil swan mean anything to you? So I was coming home last night and I was like, tinfoil swan. There's a lot there. I mean, I think it's a very creative name. And like, for me, it just resonated Immediately. When I think of the concept of a tinfoil swan, I think of taking leftovers, essentially. I don't think leftovers is really the best term because if you think about it from a colon perspective, I think about how much work we put into our food. It's really taking this thing that a group of people have made and it has taken time, it has taken technique, it has taken farmers, it has taken mother nature, it has taken culture, it has taken history. And we take that It's taken this experience that the guest has had to have this food, this story, this culture, this thing that was made by multiple people from ingredients that either came locally or from somewhere else. Being able to enjoy that experience and then take a little piece of that experience home with you in this tinfoil swan. (laughs) And it's like a little last attempt to kind of wrap it into something easy and compartmentable and bring it home and enjoy it later. And I kind of liken it to kind of like these life experiences where you have this piece of you or you have something that you shared 
and there's like a little bit left, but you want to save it. That was the whole ethos for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) There's like a little bit left that you want to save it. You want to bring it home. You want to share it. You want to savor it. And I think it's a huge metaphor for a lot of things in life. So with that, what is the thing that you want people to sort of take home and savor and think about that you have picked up over the years? Yeah, I mean, I think the experience of con isn't something that just ends at the end of dinner. And like, if we're lucky enough to get a guest, I think it's understanding that like whatever is in that piece of foil, I think it's like a bigger story of like what we do in restaurants. Like it is not just like one person making you food. You have to think about the farmers who grew these ingredients, like how they got to the restaurant, the multiple levels of people who worked to make that thing from the young prep cook to the senior line cook to the newly promoted sous chef who's a female of color. These are all the things that are literally in your tinfoil swan as you leave the restaurant. But also I think in the bigger picture, we should be able to savor things. Like we should have our own tinfoil swan moments where like we're not done with our day. We can go home and decompress. We can come home and like still take 30 minutes to ourselves. What's left over for us at the end of the day as well. And I think it's important that we have our own tinfoil swans so that we can kind of like be the, our best selves. And I can come home and have my own tinfoil swan of what happened throughout the day and just kind of focus on that and let that like kind of reflect and inspire me to be a better person tomorrow with that little bit of leftover. And you're kind of my dream guest here. <laughs> and where can people find you and get more of you? Oh, man. Con Restaurant. We are in Portland, Oregon. I wish you luck with the reservation system. Don't, don't <laughs> yell at me. It's a public platform. I have no control. We have our bar, Susol Bar, which is very easy to get into. It lies beneath Con. It's a pan-Caribbean concept. My cookbook, Everyone's Table, Global Recipes for Modern Health, is everywhere fine books are sold. And she can find me on IG at GG30,000. I check my DMs all the time. Oh, thank you so much for making time here today. You're a joy of, of course, a human yeah. being. I'm so happy we got through this. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Gregory Gorday. Be sure to follow Tinfoil Swans on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we would love your feedback. I would love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave a review, we would really appreciate it. And you can also find us online at foodandwine.com slash tinfoilswans. When I say us... I mean, our wonderful, amazing, talented production team of Lottie Le Marie, Jennifer Del Sol, Michael Classic, Amelia Schwartz, Ashley Day, Sean Flynn, and Hunter Lewis. Make sure to come back next week for my interview with Stephanie Izard. And take care of yourself until then.